Hi, I'm Lizzie, here with my friend Andrea, and we're your hosts for Letting It Percolate. Just as the best tasting coffee takes time to percolate, some of life's most interesting and important questions take time to truly explore. And that's what we're going to continue doing today. So, Andrea, what are we talking about? Yeah, so the question that we are wanting to explore today is how do hard things change us? And throughout this episode, Lizzie and I are both going to share a story of a time that we faced a hard thing, and uh, then we're going to kind of break it down and talk about what we've learned from that, maybe what we're still learning from that, and um, maybe a little bit of a zoom out perspective after that, just considering how can we, as people in general, allow hard things to change us and to move us forward and to grow us. Uh, so yeah, that is kind of where we're headed with this episode, and I'm going to go ahead and pass it back to Lizzie to share her story. Yeah, <clears throat> so obviously we're both kind of on the young end of the age spectrum. We're both in our 20s, um, so not to sound too, like, we've gone through so much, but we've both had, we've both gone through some stuff, and I think for me, I can say the hardest thing thus far in my life that I've, like, had to face has been my mental health uh, journey. And so I'm just going to share a piece of that journey for the purpose of this episode and um, what was hard about it and how I, what I learned from it. And then we'll talk about that. So um, the, my mental health stuff kind of started in college and looking back, um, I think it was probably my freshman year of college, but I, like, wasn't aware of it. Uh, I just chalked it up to, I'm a freshman in college, you know, life is hard. <laughs> but but um, I went to a summer camp after my freshman year of college. Um, some of our listeners will be aware. It's like this, um, it's associated with a campus ministry we were involved in called the Navigators. And um, so this is a place where we were learning about our relationship with God and spending time with other people who are also pursuing their relationship with God. And we were also kind of like working on a camp site, getting it ready for the campers that summer. And like, you would think that would be like my ideal place. Like I'm with Mm -hmm. friends that I just made during my first year of college. We're talking about the thing I'm most passionate about, which is my faith. And we're in this beautiful setting in nature. And I was just having the worst time of my life (laughs) and it was very distressing besides having a hard time. It was distressing because I was like, I should be having a great time Mm. and I didn't know what was going on. So basically I just wasn't feeling like myself. I um, wasn't getting any sort of enjoyment or pleasure out of conversation, which people who know me know that I like. I like to talk to people. (laughs) Um, And like, that wasn't the case when I was there. I was like, I don't know what to say to people. I was feeling kind of anxious in that sense. Like, uh, I don't like just having a pit in my stomach the whole time. And like my times in prayer with God, like I was, nothing felt right. It all felt very off and I didn't know why. And I didn't know what was going on or what to attribute anything to. And So long story short, I ended up, there was supposed to be a three-week camp. I ended up leaving after the first week just because I was kind of suffering so badly and I couldn't get anything out of, and I felt like I couldn't contribute anything to, uh, which is, I'll return to that idea 
later, but um, my mom, I talked to her on the phone before, right before she and my dad picked me up and I was kind of like, yeah, I described what I was feeling or I really wasn't feeling anything, <laughs> which was the problem. And she was like, maybe like you're depressed, like maybe you should go to counseling. And I had this like knee jerk reaction of like, I'm not depressed. I don't get depressed. Only certain people get depressed. Mm -hmm. Like, which is for context, I was a psychology major and I'm now a therapist and I like have wanted to be a therapist for a long time. (laughs) So it's kind of like, I had so much stigma that I was not aware of, but I was just like, no, I'm like, I can't possibly have a mental illness Mm -hmm. because only certain people do. But uh, eventually I was like, okay, I'm suffering enough. I just, I need to go to counseling. I need some sort of relief. Um, And what ended up happening for me, um, everyone's like, anyone who's experienced depression or depressive episodes, it looks different. In my case, it was like a very cyclical thing. So like, I would feel completely down, not myself, not hungry, like losing weight, don't want to get out of bed, sleeping a ton. Uh, Nothing brings me joy. Like I'd play piano and feel dead inside, which was very like profoundly sad because I was like what is wrong with me I usually love playing piano um and I feel that way for about two weeks and then within a day or two it would just it felt like a switch was flipped and I felt like my totally normal self again and that would last for two weeks and then I would I could literally feel like almost physically in my body I could feel myself like becoming really depressed again and that cycle continued for a while like over a year and it was a little bit more complex than that but basically during that time and after that but I had thoughts of like I'm when I would be in that depressive space I would be like I'm worthless like no one no one can possibly like me because I felt so like bland and uninteresting and um yeah a lot of false beliefs got churned up. Things that I don't think I would have maybe been aware of that I even believed or felt at all, unless I went through something as extreme as what I just described. Um, so kind of fast forwarding, just went through a process of counseling and I got on medication at different points and I was very blessed by my friends in college as well as certain friends outside of college, um, mentors, wise people in my life, my parents, people who love me, who were just a really great support system. And if I didn't have that, and if I didn't have my faith in God, I don't know where I'd be. But um, basically, God helped me to get through that in some ways, uh, which sounds like a trite thing to say. But like I said, this is just part of my journey. Um, so yeah, it was the biggest part was those like beliefs and thoughts and feelings when I would be depressed and then confronting them, even though they felt really true, confronting them with, um, what is true about me. Like I feel worthless. I feel like I can't think straight. I couldn't concentrate. My mind was really foggy. Um, I feel worthless cause I can't add anything to classroom discussions. I can't talk to my friends. Um, But even though I feel that way, the reality is I'm not worthless and kind of choosing to believe that. So that's kind of the overview um, of 
a piece of that hard, <laughs> hard experience. Mm. Thank you so much for just like being open with us and sharing that. <laughs> I think it's a pretty vulnerable place to go in episode two. <laughs> um, yeah, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope, uh, I know as I was listening to you walk through this and I hope mm-hmm. that as other people were too, um, that maybe at points we can empathize with where you have been and um, also just be a little bit more open ourselves uh, mm. with our journeys because I think we all have different highs and lows and um, absolutely it's yeah. it's helpful for us to like reflect on them and not to just shove them down. Okay. Um, that being said, got a few questions a brewing over here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first is, what was it like? You mentioned that sometimes the depressive episodes were cyclical, that they were returning mm-hmm. and it was about every two weeks or so um, that there was a change. What was it like anticipating, oh, mm. I may only have a few, quote, good days left before the next episode or the next um, season of depressive feelings? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that is a really good question because I felt very crazy during this time because of the fact that it was pretty, like, solid, like, two weeks, two weeks, two weeks of, like, just cycles, and, um, it, it was a little bit, like, okay, do I have a hand in this? Like, is this a self-fulfilling prophecy? Like, after a certain number of times of experiencing that cycle, I was, like, am I bringing this upon myself? Because, Mm -hmm. like, maybe day 10, 11, 12 of feeling normal, like, my normal self, starting to have those thoughts of, like, uh uh-oh, like, is this going to happen again? Like, what's my mood going to do in a couple days? And I really, it was really a big thing that I wrestled with of, am I causing my own, like, struggle with my mental health um, because I'm able to kind of, like, predict it or see this pattern and so it was very, like, ominous all of the time, <laughs> uh, which was, like, added, uh, um, it was just added stress on top of what's obviously stressful to go through that with your mood. So, yeah, I, that part of that was, even though I was a psychology major and I liked doing my own reading about, like, mental health stuff, I still didn't know as much as I maybe thought I knew <laughs> about the nature of my mental health and, um, I was misdiagnosed with depression. Um, I was, I actually have bipolar, which makes a lot more sense in retrospect, but at the time I didn't have any sort of like of the hypomania. And so I was just diagnosed with the wrong thing, even though it looks like depression and that, that was unhelpful from the perspective of what medications they were prescribing. But, uh, your question was, what was it like when kind of like anticipating anticipating yeah and I because oh go ahead no I was just gonna say it's like there was I don't have an answer like it was just hard yeah (laughs) like (laughs) I think that that is an answer (laughs) yeah that's a solid answer uh and kind of a follow-up on that too did you or do you feel that there was ever a point where that cycle was broken or are you in some way still experiencing that today Mm. um 
That is also a good question. I think the cycle, in the way that I experienced it at that time, which was, it felt very violent, to put it, like, intensely. Like, Mm. it felt so, like, I was being thrashed around by my brain, and it was so unpleasant, and that has ended. Um, And I attribute much of that, honestly, to my medication that I'm currently on. Um, Helped kind of taper some of the extremes but I also attribute some of it to the tons of counseling that I've been (laughs) through myself (laughs) um and to just God helping me and I think like I wouldn't be able to maybe understand what I've learned in counseling or apply what I've learned in counseling without God's graciousness and help in that Mm. um and so yeah I think I still experience it's hard because it's like okay what's normal like normatively everyone experiences ups and downs like that's the human experience and so I've had to go through this thought process of like okay that's normal up to a point (laughs) and then when does it cross over and it's not black and white either but when does it cross over into like oh this is like impairing my functioning or this is a problem now Mm. and I'm very very thankful that the past couple years of my life I haven't felt like it's crossed over that threshold so to speak and I've just felt like yeah I experienced pretty much normal ups and downs maybe like slightly more than someone else but in a manageable way um, as opposed to before like in college and my year post-college I lived in Kansas City as you know and most of that time was also very challenging with that. Um, but I feel, like I said, with medication, with counseling and stuff, I've exited that <laughs> cycle to a large extent. I'm so glad to hear that. And I think that gives hope to people who are experiencing, whether it's a two-week cycle or maybe it's a little bit more prolonged, but... Um, yeah, that there most are, people, <laughs> yeah, prolonged. There are resources out there um, that, yeah, are accessible and that that cycle can be broken or at least greatly, greatly minimized. Uh, I want to back up to something that you touched on in your story. This idea that there could be some higher truth than what we're experiencing in our feelings. Um mm-hmm. How did you learn or start to accept that truth could exist outside of what you were feeling? And uh, if this is helpful to, like, spin the wheels a little bit on that one, was there ever, like, a particular Bible verse, scripture, um, Mm. some piece of truth that you can remember really holding on to as you were kind of working through that? Yeah, um, that I could talk for a long time (laughs) on that particular question. Um, just because there's so much there, but to try to limit myself. Um, so the question is like, how do we, how do you start to accept that like maybe what I'm feeling isn't the truth or like the truth exists outside of what I'm feeling? Um, honestly, that started with the wise, kind people in my life who were speaking truth to me mm. when I was depressed, who were saying, Hey, Lizzie, this is what God says about you. God says that you're valuable more than rubies and gold. God says that you're his daughter. God did X, Y, and Z for you to 
bring you into a relationship with himself. And hearing it was hard because like hearing all of that when I was depressed was like, I almost felt guilty for not feeling grateful or not feeling Mm. excited about these things that stereotypically Christians are supposed to be like worshipful and excited about. And I was just like, everything was like bland and black and like no color. (laughs) (laughs) So it was like hard in a sense, but that was a long process of many people in my life, maybe some of them weren't even aware of what they were doing, but many people, and again, I'm blessed to say that I had a good support system, would tell me like, hey, you, you're thinking this, I hear that, but here's the truth, <laughs> kind of, whether in their own words or directly from the Bible. And I think it, it was a long time, like a couple years before I even could begin to fully start to grasp that because it's a weird thing. It's, it was a weird thing to say because I was so, this is one thing that I was learning from this is I didn't realize I put so much stock in my feelings mm. um, prior to going through this. I just like, if I felt like, like a good example is doing homework. Like I was kind of perfectionistic in high school and to some extent in college. And I would only stop working on a homework assignment when I felt like it was done or I felt like it was good. And when I was having to do homework, when I was feeling so off and depressed and stuff, I like never stopped because I never felt like it was good. I always felt like my work in my classes was horrible. Mm. Uh, And one quick anecdote to illustrate that I did this like lab write up for this stat class, like freshman year, psych stats. Uh, not too intense. <laughs> I wasn't going to judge, but. <laughs> um, and I did this write-up that I thought was so bad. I was conv- I was truly convinced I was going to get an F. And the lab instructor, like, not only did I get an A, but wow. he wrote like, hey, like, you did a really great job or something like that. And I remember thinking like, he's delusional. <laughs> like, He's crazy. This is a piece of garbage. Like, that's how distorted my perception was. Wow. Um, so to go back to your question, yeah, it was just like multiple people over and over again telling me like, hey, this is the truth. And it's hard to believe it right now. It's hard to accept it right now. But I think having an openness to the possibility that maybe my feelings aren't the truth mm. was the first step. <laughs> Ooh, I want to... That's awesome. I mean, what I'm hearing is community played a big role in um, giving you perspective and maybe a lens to see into that you didn't have Mm -hmm. access to yourself at the time. Yeah. Um, And I want to piggyback off of that to kind of press into what, what qualities did you see in your friends, in mentors, people that were speaking in that helped you know, okay, these are safe people. Um, these are people that mm. I can trust. These are people that care mm. about me. Uh, I, I realize it's a little abstract of a question, but yeah, is there something you can think of that kind of encouraged you to open up to them? Yeah, that's a good question because, like, we all want to be, well, I maybe shouldn't assume, but I think a lot of us want to be that person for someone who's struggling. Like, we want to be the, someone where they feel like they can come to us and be safe. Yes. Um. I think, honestly, one of the biggest things um, is 
listening and kind of just saying, yeah, uh-huh, I hear you. Mm. And then silence, like, and just sitting with me. That was huge because I didn't have too many people who would try to, like, give me advice to exit my <laughs> depression. But, like, when that would happen, it's just like, uh, like, you don't understand. It's not that simple. It's not like, I have a problem, you have the solution. Yeah. It's, I have a problem and I need you to hug me, mm. <laughs> so to speak, whether literally or metaphorically. It sounds... And I... Go not ahead, to yeah. make too much light of the situation, but that sounds like <laughs> no, a really nice do. Hallmark card or maybe like a sticker. <laughs> I have a problem and I need you to hug me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think like in Job in the Bible, we see that like with his friends who offered so much poor advice to him, like the first seven days where Job lost his whole family and his house and everything and was in such grief. The first seven days with his friends, um, they were silent. They just sat with him. And those were the good good days. <laughs> Once they started talking and trying to tell him, like, oh, you should have done this, like, that's when it became rough. And I, I would agree. I would agree with Job on that. <laughs> just, like, whether they, whether friends were, like, in tune with, like, oh, here's what God says about you or not, the friends who were able to just say, like, hey, I hear how hard this is. Like, let's sit together on our, my bed or let's walk around or let's watch something. That was the key thing, just being able to just exist together. Because I was so self-conscious about my inability to have a normal conversation during those episodes mm. of depression. And so having the non-pressure to just, like, be together. It's huge. Yeah. And maybe yeah. even, too, there, it sounds like there was some implicit conveying of the fact that these friends who were spending time with you, taking walks, sitting, and just being, they saw something valuable in you. They were affirming your value. And even mm -hmm. without you having to produce anything, without you having to make conversation or be funny or... um. I don't know, yeah. seeing whatever else. Like, yeah. they, like, weren't <laughs> expecting any skill or, like, behavior. Yeah. Um, they saw something in you, and they were acknowledging it by spending time with you that was valuable inherently, um, mm. not something that yes. you had to manufacture to create your yes. own value. Yeah, dude. And that's the other part of this that's, like, I could talk for five million hours <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that I had put my whole identity into my personality, like, before all of this. My identity was, I'm fun, or I'm funny, or, like, people like talking to me, or I like talking to people, and, like, all of that went away when I was in these depressive episodes, at least in my perception. And you're right to have people say, like, we still want to hang out with you, even though, like, I feel like I'm a lump on a log. <laughs> that was implicitly affirming, like, oh maybe the value I bring to a certain friendship is beyond what I can quote-unquote add because of my quote-unquote personality. Mm. Um, that's, yeah, like I said, that's a super big topic, but that was a major lesson. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, like I said, this is just like a slice of that story, um, but... Thanks for, those were really good questions to explore, like, 
even extrapolating out from, like, not everyone has an experience of, like, some extreme <clears throat> mental health stuff. A lot of people do, but even if you don't have that experience, there's still, like, lessons to extrapolate from that. So I appreciate your questions. Hmm. You're welcome. I appreciate you sharing your story. All right. Uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit now here. And I'm going to go ahead and share a story of mine that I would describe as a different kind of hard than the hard that Lizzie went through. So this story begins when I was a senior in high school. Really, it probably begins when I was born. But (laughs) when I remember it starting is when I was a senior in high school and I was taking a government and law class, which I absolutely loved. (laughs) And we were talking about some Supreme Court cases that dealt with affirmative action and college decisions and admissions process. And essentially, affirmative action is the idea that for uh, certain groups of people, uh, for example, people who are first-generation first person in their family to go to college, there might be factors outside of the normal test scores, essays, GPA in high school, factors that might be considered as weighing more into whether or not that person should be admitted to college with the understanding that historically this kind of person hasn't really gone to college. So hopefully that helps a little bit. That's not really the point of the story. (laughs) So, we were talking about affirmative action, and race was one of the criteria that was being considered in the court case, um, Mm. whether race should be allowed to be considered in whether or not someone is admitted to college. And so, I remember after class having a conversation with uh, someone who is still a good friend of mine from high school, and I think I said uh, pretty much... I don't see why we need to talk about affirmative action cases. Uh, The civil rights movement era is over. I think we've pretty much arrived. Uh, I don't see why... I don't see, like, evidence of blatant racism. Mm. And I think this is essentially a non-issue. Again, that wasn't verbatim, but that was the true transparent gist of what Mm. I said. I did, it registered with me when I switched from high school to college, like, okay, the racial makeup is a little bit different here, Mm. and I feel a little bit more in the majority, but the weird thing was, I felt almost more comfortable in that makeup Mm. in college, um, seeing more faces that were like me, and, um, I just, I, I remember having a conscious thought about that, like, oh, this is less diverse, but I don't feel like something is missing. Mm. I don't feel like I've lost something Mm. by entering into this space where there's more people that look like me and more people that come from uh, a similar socioeconomic background than me. Uh, Okay, so that's kind of, that's happening freshman year of college. I'm digesting this. Fast forward to senior year of college I'm driving to Pennsylvania with a very good friend of mine, Mm -hmm. and we're listening to a podcast that uh, actually two of our, Lizzie and my mutual friends, hosted a while ago. And (laughs) one of them was talking about his experience as a black male in kind of normal environments that we go into. And I think the example he gave was like a retail store. Mm. 
And he was saying he walked into the retail store and would be greeted by someone at the at the front as he walked through the doors and then would notice that this person would follow him from a distance as he was walking around the store, maybe pulling out shirts or trying on shoes or whatever, and would basically have an eye on him and sometimes even step in and say, like, can I help you find something? Uh, but, yeah, basically would be watching him until the moment he left the store. And he pretty much uh, said that that was not, like, a one, one-off one experience. It happened a lot. Mm-hmm. And he was fairly certain that, that it was because he was a black male. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a moment for me that my eyes that were previously quite shut mm-hmm. <laughs> peeled open a little bit. I had never considered that when someone was greeting me as I entered a store, they were doing it for any reason other than to acknowledge me and to thank me for coming in as a customer. I never had thought about maybe they're doing that as a security measure uh, to make sure that I know their eyes are on me. And if I was ever followed by someone in a store, never in my brain did I have the thought, oh, they might suspect that I'm going to steal something or that I'm going to stash something away. That was uh, something that I believe in the words of my friend was considered a privilege. Mm. And yeah, that that kind of brief and rather simple story on their podcast got my wheels spinning a little bit. Like, are there other instances in life where if I was a black woman or maybe a black male, I would... Um, have to be a lot more aware of my actions and maybe a little bit more verbally, um, what's the word? Just verbally, like, open or explicit with my intentions Mm. about why I'm doing things. So, uh, after, well, during senior year of college and after I graduated from IU, I attended a few different churches that really, um, prioritized preaching on every person being made in the image of God. Uh, That was kind of an understood principle that comes from Genesis 1, that human beings are made male and female, and they're made in the image of God. And that alone gives inherent value, kind of like the value I was Mm -hmm. hinting at in your story, Lizzie. Mm -hmm. And that, um, when considering the topic of race, really started to take some root in my heart, I think I started to realize, for example, when I began my time at IU and was surrounded by more white people and felt more comfortable, that there was something I should have felt was lost Mm. by not having the diversity and the other experiences of people of other races and coming from other ethnic backgrounds. Mm than I was, but I I wasn't valuing them the way that God would because I didn't feel that loss. I didn't feel Mm. that something was missing when I entered that setting. And uh, during this post-college time, I also, through uh, my own counseling journey, came across the scripture in Ephesians 2, 8 that says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And uh, this served multiple purposes (laughs) in my own kind of counseling journey, but 
in particular as as it um, pertains to race. From this verse, I see that anyone who is a Christian who has been saved through faith in Jesus Christ, there's nothing about them that earned that. Mm -hmm. There's nothing about their race that made God more inclined to say, here, I'm going to give you salvation because you're of this race. Um, Likewise, he didn't give it to anyone because they were a hard worker or because they were incredibly intelligent or because they were so funny. Mm -hmm. He gave it uh, because of grace alone. And man, that that scripture has come up a lot Mm. in my life uh, since that counseling experience. But I think, especially, like I said, it's pertaining to Christians. And for anyone who's listening who is a Christian, I think we need to consider the truth of those words that it's only by grace that we're saved. And if that's mm-hmm. the case, what room do we have to judge um, someone else's behavior or action based on the color of their skin? And uh, last, sorry, last little bit, and then I'm going to wrap this up. <laughs> More recently, obviously, I think most of us know that there's been a lot of racial tension in our country over the past few months And there's a few resources that I was introduced to, some of them actually by Lizzie, uh, that have also shaped my thinking. One of them is the movie Just Mercy. It's also a book written by Brian Stevenson. This is a quote from the book that he, and I think it's also in the movie. For every nine people who have been executed in the U.S., one person on death row has been exonerated and released. A shocking rate of error. Uh, it's also, I think that statistic is most definitely shocking, um, because one in nine (laughs) that actually should not have received the death penalty is a pretty high margin of error. Mm -hmm. Uh, also when you overlay that with the fact that, uh, disproportionately black men are represented in prisons and on death row, that starts to become, um, a pretty weighty statistic. Another one, this came from the documentary 13th on Netflix. Uh, Out of all white men in the country, the lifetime likelihood of imprisonment for U.S. residents that were born in 2001. So this is a little bit narrow, and I'm acknowledging that. Um, One in 17 men, white men, will spend time in prison during their lifetime one in six Latino men will, and one in three black men will spend time in prison during their life. And that, to me, is appalling. That one in 17 white men versus one in three black Mm -hmm. men. Uh, And because they're proportions, they're not looking at aggregate numbers, but I think that would also be shocking. They're looking at simply proportions. So, um, those things in mind, I have definitely become more aware of the idea of racism and that whether it's implicit or explicit, it exists. And it was in me in that moment in high school when I told my friend, uh, the civil rights era is over and I think racism is not a problem and why should we be considering giving people preference in college admissions Mm -hmm. based on their race? So, uh, yeah, I think I talked a little bit longer than I hoped to, but that that's my journey. Yeah. And I, as I mentioned, I'm definitely still learning and exploring. 
and wanting to be able to see people the way that God sees them with inherent value that was given by him and not with any kind of value that the world might try to attach Mm -hmm. to them. Yeah, man, I feel like a lot of people, maybe like a lot of white people can relate to this, like having your eyes opened at different points. And it's sad. It's kind of like an indictment on certain elements of our education growing up. Like, why was this not more talked about maybe explicitly? And because I can Mm. definitely relate to parts of what you were sharing, just feeling like hearing, I know what podcast you're talking about, (laughs) hearing like (laughs) someone who looks different than me. Like we, it's funny because like, it's like we have equal worth. We have equal dignity before God, and yet we look different. And so, therefore, one person has a different experience, even just walking through a store, than I do. And, Mm. um, yeah. So, one question I have for you, as you've, like, even sharing um, that brief conversation in high school, that your view at the time, I'm guessing, like, sharing that, now feels uncomfortable like and yes. <laughs> acknowledging like our own ignorance and like I know I still have a lot that I'm ignorant to um now and I, that's kind of like the process of life you just learn <laughs> hopefully gain <laughs> wisdom as you grow older but what is it like in the moment to feel that like challenge or feel like oh man like things are shifting and I don't understand or I feel ashamed or what was that like just experience those challenges it feels as though what I thought I controlled I don't control and maybe specifically it feels like um it's disorienting because I like to have the information, like all the information, and to have as holistic a perspective as possible. And so that shows just how much information uh, I was missing. And not that, not that judgments are purely based on information, mm. but that just tends to be how I orient in my worldview. And uh, yeah, definitely just disorienting and um, humbling in an uncomfortable sense like oh here I thought I was informed Mm -hmm. and I thought I had read my history books Mm -hmm. and I just took AP US history the year prior to taking this government law class and um still there's such big gaps in my understanding of the real human experience of people of different races than my own yeah yeah those gaps are for me that's like scary it's like what don't I know like I look back on my understanding of, like, the world, (laughs) so to speak, like, two years ago, and I'm like, wow, I've learned so much. And then it's kind of weird in this moment to say, like, three years from now, I might feel like, wow, I was an idiot in 2020. (laughs) Like, (laughs) that's kind of a scary thing. Um, How do you specifically try to address that, like, in terms of who you surround yourself with, who, where you get information what communities you attach yourself to like how have you whether intentionally or unintentionally how do you kind of approach that now if i were to i guess summarize it i've tried to 
um, get to know people well enough that I can trust their evaluations and trust that where I have blind spots or gaps that I'm not seeing something that they can see into that and that their perspective is equally as valid as mine is, um, if not more, Mm -hmm. because they may touch an issue closer. And just to concretize this, at our church uh, a week or two ago, we had a big church vote and Mm -hmm. it was regarding whether we were going to secure funding to add an elevator because currently people who um, maybe are bound to a wheelchair or have an injury, they can't get upstairs and that... um, prohibits them from participating in some of the, like, church activities and such. And to me, I've not personally been affected by not having an elevator. Um, That's the grace of God so far in my life. But I felt comfortable deferring to other people in my church body, knowing how big the financial investment was, knowing that I was uncomfortable with that amount of money. But deferring to the ones who have been personally affected by this and who um, maybe have more passion and are more informed about how big of a transformation it'd be for our church to create that kind of accessibility with the installment of an elevator. And um, I was more comfortable doing that Mm. uh, a few weeks ago than I think I would have been a few years ago um, because I've started to build relationships with these people, some who are a few generations ahead of me and... For whom wheelchairs might be a little bit more present in their minds. Uh, So, yeah, I guess that's one more tangible way that I can see this change Mm. kind of working its way through my life. Again, I think going back to, like, kind of feeling like my elements of my elementary, middle, and high school education could have been better at um, aspects of what you've talked about, including... Like, I think, why do I, and why have I felt like, it's just like this arrogance that doesn't feel explicit. It feels like, it's like subtle, but it mm-hmm. it gets called out in, in certain like conversations or settings, kind of like you described, where it's like, oh, I don't have that experience. I haven't read enough about this and... That being able to say, like, and therefore I'm not going to, like, share my uninformed opinion. Um, <laughs> I feel like I wish I would have – I try to be like that. I, I'm not – like, I feel like I still can grow in that humility because um, I think having, like, such a me-centric and therefore, like, woman, female, white-centric – view like by nature we all like view the world world through our own lens um Mm. in certain ways but I think in my case it's like I shouldn't give as much credence to certain views or opinions or things I think I understand when I probably don't um and I I hope that we can start teaching kids more of this, like, your, (laughs) what you've happened to have is your views, whether politically or spiritually or world views, whatever, what you happen to have based on your context and what you've stumbled upon in your readings might not be (laughs) the truth with a capital T Mm. and 
yeah, that's kind of just me rambling about <laughs> exposure to different information, but um, mm. it sounds like that's been an element of your experience, kind of learning more about how race plays into everyday experience or, yeah, it's all just, I think it's so important to consider, um, and I, maybe cultural, what's the word? Um, there's a word, zeitgeist. Yes, that's the word. The zeitgeist, zeitgeist of the moment is like talking more about this topic, which I think is good. Um, mm. So, Yes, I definitely affirm a lifelong um, goal or ambition of learning. And part of the learning process is learning where you're wrong or learning things that you didn't know you, learning things even that you didn't know you didn't know, learning about our own ignorance. So, uh, yes, I, I affirm and encourage that in both of us and, and anyone who's listening yeah. to guys. We really appreciate you taking time to listen to this and mm -hmm. consider some of the questions that we're clearly still working through. <laughs> yeah. uh, thank you for tuning in to Letting It Percolate. We hope that you connected with what we talked about in today's episode and that your thoughts have been sufficiently percolated. In the next episode, we'll ask the question, should we condemn or praise singleness? Finally, we want to give a shout out to my brother Conrad for composing original music that we're using for the intro and the outro. And with that, uh, we will call it a wrap. Talk to you next time, guys.